Heavenly Father, there are many there are many things that we need to apply the love of Jesus Christ towards. And in our country, we need to more than ever bring the love of Christ to bear on all of these things that are in our lives and that are threatening our country. God, I pray that we as a country would humble ourselves underneath the sovereignty of you. I pray that this country would humble ourselves underneath your sovereignty. If we don't have love, we have nothing. If we don't deeply care about the people around us who do not know you, we have nothing. And Lord, this is a complicated issue. All the more reason we need to engage deeply in what's happening. Help us, God, because we can't do it without you. Give us wisdom, Lord, because we don't have enough wisdom in ourselves. Give us your love, God, because we need and we desire to love. Lord, we are thankful for the ways that you are active around us. I'm thankful for Jack and for the ability to, well, have his truck not explode. We thank you for that protection. And for Donna, Lord, we're just so pleased that she's here with us when so easily she could have passed away. But Lord, you saw fit. And we give you thanks. We think about what happened in Wadena, and, and Lord, we are concerned about what what just happened there last night. We don't know all the details, God, but um, please heal the police officer that was wounded. And we think about the, the people that apparently their lives were ended last night. And we don't know everything, Lord, but I think about their families as well. And somehow, God, work in that situation. Lord, we look at this list and we know that there are many who need your healing touch. And God, we still remember and will continue to remember the Lillo family after the loss of Josh. And Lord, please be there. God, we love you. We pray that you would be at work in our lives and in this community. And we just ask, Lord, we ask that you would accept our praise. You are so worthy of praise. And we are so thankful that you love us as a father loves his children. In Jesus' name we pray. Amen. I like Star Wars. I like it. Yes, I do. 
I don't talk about Star Wars very much in sermons, and that's very likely a good thing. <laughs> but uh, I don't like Star Wars because uh, I believe in Buddhism. Uh, I don't agree with the force. I don't think there's a, a force that is connecting all living things. I just think it's an entertaining story. And I think that the character development's good, and I just like it. I, I, it's a story of, you know, heroes and villains and, and the redemption of a villain. And, I mean, it's just, it's just something I like. You know, as a kid, I, I had the VHS tapes of Star Wars. Do you know, I, I'm not embarrassed to admit this. I actually wore out my Return of the Jedi VHS. I watched it so many times that it broke. And I had to buy another one. Can you believe that? Is that impressive? I mean, as far as life goals go, that check that one off. I literally wore out the tape. It's good stuff. And you know, my favorite movie was Return of the Jedi and still is. And there's a, there's a moment when all of the movies, they, they come together at this final battle. And the Rebel Alliance is making this desperate attack on the second Death Star. And everything hangs on this secret attack that the fleet is... Well, I'm excited about this right? Come on. And they, they, they jump out of light speed and the entire fleet has been, has been building all three movies and they come and they shoot in front of the Death Star and they're coming in and they're so excited because it, the, the attack was a secret and they were going to go in and then they can't get a reading on whether the shield on the Death Star is up or down. How could they, how could, how could they be jamming us if they don't know that we're coming? And then, Admiral Akbar, the, the leader of the rebel fleet, he realizes what's going on, and... Admiral, we have enemy ships It's a trap! It's a trap! Yes, I can sound like Admiral Akbar because I use that quote all the time. It's a trap! I love it. Just in regular conversation, I say that quite often. Probably once every two weeks, I probably say that. I say to my, somebody says, you know, their wife says, where do you want to eat today? And I say, it's a trap! You know, I don't care where we go. It's a trap! Just put in your own phrase there. There are traps all around us. Now, okay, so this was a pretty lame sermon introduction that I just did there. I just, it's so fitting because what we're going to talk about today was a trap. So I hope you keep in mind Admiral Akbar as we talk about the words of Jesus today. What a strange transition that was. We better pray, okay? We better pray. Lord God, I thank you that you are with us, and more importantly, Lord, you're not just with us. You have given us your word. You have given us what you want us to know in your word. You've inspired this book, Lord. And now, God, as you have inspired the writers of this book. Now we ask, Holy Spirit, that you would inspire us as the hearers of your word. Holy Spirit, speak to us. Help us to interpret. We need you. Amen. Well, please open up your Bibles to the book of Luke. We have been going through Luke, and if you are just joining us online and this is your first time, uh, this is actually sermon number 37. Wow. So if you are just joining us and you're like, sermon number 37, whew, there's a bunch of sermons you could catch up with on our website. But, sermon number 37, 
Jesus is in Jerusalem. He has just entered Jerusalem. And when he got there, in this final week of his life, Jesus is being questioned. His authority is being questioned by the Jewish leaders. And it makes sense that they would question him on what he is questioned about today. You know, there are a few certainties in life. But there are two certainties. Do you know what they are? Death and taxes. You know, we we sometimes think today, like we're in the 21st century. We think that we are so far advanced compared to the people of Bible times. That we're so far in front of them. Um, no, not really. You know, there's all, most of the things in life, we are right where the Bible times folks were. And death and taxes, I can tell you this, the people of Jesus' time, they understood that death and taxes are a part of life. They are an unpleasant part of reality for all of us and for them. Well, our journey through the book of Luke has led us to this final week of Jesus' life. And last Sunday, we saw how Jesus asserted his authority at the temple. And we also saw how the Jewish leaders questioned that authority. In fact, the Jewish leaders, and by the way, those leaders that grouped together to oppose Jesus, they themselves were enemies. But they came together against their common enemy, who was Jesus. And they wanted to discredit Jesus. Now, Jesus did not shrink from their attacks. Instead, he warned the people of the evil of the Jewish religious leaders. And our passage today continues this theme. As we will see, these leaders, they weren't stupid. These Jewish leaders, in fact, were exceptionally crafty in the way that they attempted to trap Jesus. So if you're in Luke chapter 20... We're going to start in verse 20. Keeping a close watch on him, they sent spies who pretended to be honest. They hoped to catch Jesus in something he said, so that they might hand him over to the power and authority of the governor. So the spies questioned him. Teacher, we know that you speak and teach what is right. And that you do not show partiality, but teach the way of God in accordance with the truth. Is it right for us to pay taxes to Caesar or not? He saw through their duplicity and said to them, Show me a denarius. Whose portrait and inscription are on it? Caesar's, they said. He said to them, Then give to Caesar what is Caesar's, and to God what is God's. They were unable to trap him in what he had said there in public. And astonished by his answer, they became silent. (laughs) A trap. What a clever trap. The Jewish leaders knew exactly what they were doing. And they... They knew exactly what they hoped Jesus would say. You see, from their perspective, the problem with Jesus was that he was so popular with the people. Perhaps they thought if they could set a trap for Jesus, 
They could tangle Jesus in his own words. Now, if you've studied the time of Jesus, and many of you have spent much of your life, but some of you have not, the Roman Empire was the big, strong group that was in charge at the time of Jesus. And not just of Palestine, the Roman Empire stretched from Spain all the way across Italy, all the way up into Germany, all the way down through Palestine, all the way down into northern Africa, and all the way over to the whole side of northern Africa. It was the biggest empire the world had ever seen up to that point. And still even today, the Roman Empire is like an example for empires even today. They were strong. And by the way, the vast majority of Jews disliked. And by disliked, I mean they hated the Roman Empire. They hated the fact that the Romans were in control of their country. They hated it. They hated them. They wanted them to die. And they did not want to pay taxes to them. And for the Jews, this was a significant problem because this was like a daily example of what it was not supposed to be. The Jews were supposed to be God's chosen people. The Jews were not supposed to be politically controlled by a group of pagan Gentiles. That was the Romans. They should not be giving anything to the Romans because they were supposed to be God's people and everything they had was supposed to be God's. They didn't want to give anything to the Romans. Nothing. They wanted the Romans gone. They shouldn't have to pay taxes to the Romans. The very presence of the Romans in Jerusalem was considered blasphemous. They hated them. So you see, the trap that the Jewish leaders set was quite good. It was summed up in one simple question. Verse 22, is it right for us to pay taxes to Caesar or not? Now, by the way, Caesar is not a salad dressing. Caesar was the king of Rome. Caesar was the king, the emperor the head honcho, the guy in charge, Caesar. Now, think about how how incredibly brilliant this trap was. If Jesus answered this question, no, it is not right to pay taxes to Caesar, because that's what the people wanted to hear. If Jesus said that, then the Jewish leaders had the evidence they needed to take Jesus And have him arrested by the Romans. Because the Romans would have seen what Jesus was doing as treason. He would be leading people not to pay taxes. That's treason. Ah. But if Jesus answered the opposite way. If Jesus said, yes, it is right to pay taxes to Caesar. Then the people who hated the Romans would turn away from Jesus. And that would accomplished what the Jewish leaders wanted. Because Jesus was so popular with the people, if he said, pay taxes to Caesar, the people would no longer follow and listen to Jesus. So from the, from the Jewish leaders' perspective, there's no right answer for Jesus. 
They presented him with a question in which there was no right answer. They presented him with an either-or question. An either-or. They were wrong. Jesus, you see, turned their either-or question into a both-and question. Look at verses 23 through 25. He saw through their duplicity. Duplicity is such an interesting word there. Duplicity. It's related to the word hypocrisy. Duplicity, like duplicate. There's two. Jesus saw that they were being hypocritical in even the question itself. And how did he prove it? He didn't even have to te- he didn't even have to say it. He proved it by their own actions. Jesus said, "Show me a denarius. Whose portrait and inscription are on it?" Caesar's, they replied. And then he said to them, "Then give to Caesar what is Caesar's and to God what is God's." A denarius was a coin, a Roman coin that was worth about a day's wage of a of a laborer. So it was, you know, in our days, it would be like, you know, $50 bill. Okay? Guess what? The Jewish leaders would have a denarius on them. Do you understand what Jesus did here? <laughs> he said, show me a denarius. Can, now picture in your brain these Jewish leaders. They had it on them. Their own duplicity was shown by the the fact they were carrying the very symbol that they were trying to catch Jesus in. It would have been pretty normal to expect those Jewish leaders to carry a denarius, and they had one. By asking them to produce a, a denarius, Jesus uses their actions to prove their own hypocrisy. By the very act of carrying the coin. He was able to prove that they had already accepted and were living under the authority of the Roman Empire. They were already buying into the system. They had already answered the question for themselves. And moreover, since the coins literally had the image and inscription of Caesar on them, Jesus could prove that they were already Caesar's. Ah, the image of Caesar on the coin. And here's something that we might easily miss in this story. The coin has the image of Caesar. Whose image is on you? Oh. All the way back to Genesis. We were made in whose image? Do you see what Jesus did here? Give to Caesar what's Caesar. Caesar can have the coins. Make sure you give God yourself because God's image is on you. That was a great answer. I mean, Jesus is God, so I mean, you're going to expect a good answer. But I mean, come on. That's an amazing answer to that question. And it, it actually gives us a lot of understanding about the way we interact today with government. Now, I want to tell you something that is is really pretty interesting and really quite meaningful. And this is especially meaningful because only moments ago I told you to write our senator. Okay? You ready for this? 
This is the closest that Jesus ever gets to making a political statement. That's the closest that Jesus ever gets to making a political statement right here. That's an important thing I just said right there. Jesus was not involved in politics. Now, I'm not saying we should or shouldn't be involved in politics because of this. I'm I'm not going beyond what's here. I'm simply stating a fact. This is the closest that Jesus ever got to politics. Right here. Jesus, in his time and his ministry on earth, was almost completely uninterested in secular politics. Almost completely uninterested. And Jesus does this, his answer is not either or, it's a both and. That has meaning for us. I mean, notice that Jesus does recognize the existence of the Roman government. And he even recognizes that to a certain extent, the Roman government has authority over our lives. At least in coins. (laughs) At least in taxation. But he doesn't say anything else. I think... The fact that Jesus does not go into politics is meaningful for followers of Jesus. Is that a wrong thing to say? I think that's not wrong at all. And yet it feels like what I'm saying is wrong right there, doesn't it? Just a little bit. It feels like what I'm saying is wrong. Christians are supposed to be engaged. Well, I can say yes, we are. Even with what I said this this morning in prayer time, Christians are supposed to be engaged. But always remember, as followers of Christ, Jesus had virtually no political engagement. Virtually none. I think that's meaningful. I think it's worth saying. Now, I'm not saying that we should not be involved. I'm just saying it's important to recognize this was not a priority of Jesus' ministry. It just was not. Now, of course, we know that only a few years later, probably a decade and a half, 15 or 20 years after this moment, We know that the Apostle Paul and the disciple Peter both wrote about how we as Christians should engage with secular government. I've actually preached a sermon on this within the last year. I preached on Romans chapter 13 and 1 Peter chapter 2. A couple passages that a lot of Christians would really like were not in the Bible because we're supposed to submit to the government in those passages. So it's not that Christianity doesn't have something to say about this. We do. We are to submit to the government. But I'm suggesting that Peter, that Jesus did not have a large political engagement. It's worth recognizing that. And I'm not going to say anything more about that because Jesus didn't say anything more about that. One final note. Take a look at what these Jewish leaders say only a day or two later. If you turn to Luke chapter 23, verse 2, look just real quick, Luke 23, verse 2. This is at the trial of Jesus. And they begin to accuse him, saying, We have found this man subverting our nation. He opposes payment of taxes to Caesar and claims to be Christ a king. I just find it interesting. Like two or three days later, probably not even that long, maybe only a day and a half later, the Jewish leaders 
accused Jesus of doing this anyways, even though he didn't. They decide just to make it up. I just find that interesting. Let's move on to verse 27, to the next section. Some of the Sadducees, who say there is no resurrection, came to Jesus with a question. Teacher, they said, Moses wrote for us that if a man's brother dies and leaves a wife but no children, the man must marry the widow and have children for his brother. Now there were seven brothers. The first one married a woman and died childless. The second and then the third married her, and in the same way the seven died, leaving no children. Finally, the woman died too. Now then, at the resurrection, whose wife will she be since the seven were married to her? Jesus replied, The people of this age marry and are given in marriage. But those who are considered worthy of taking part in that age and in the resurrection from the dead will neither marry nor be given in marriage. And they can no longer die, for they are like the angels. They are God's children since they are children of the resurrection. But in the account of the bush, even Moses showed that the dead rise, for he calls the Lord the God of Abraham and the God of Isaac and the God of Jacob. He is not the God of the dead, but of the living, for to him all are alive. Some of the teachers of the law responded, Well said, teacher! And no one dared to ask him any more questions. Well, Jesus brought his enemies to silence on the subject of taxes, so they tried to trick him with a question about death. Death and taxes. Some things never change. Now, if you've never read this passage, and there are, there are going to be some people in here that have never read this passage. There are some people in here that are very new in their faith in Jesus. And this is probably a surprise to you. Some others of you that have never read this or have never considered this, when you really look at this, this is going to be a head-scratcher, would be my guess. So, let me break this down a little bit for you so that we understand what's happening here. First, take a look at who asked the question. Verse 27. Some of the Sadducees who say there is no resurrection came to Jesus with a question. All right, the Sadducees. I've said this before, so this is going to be a review for many of you. I'll go quickly. But you need to understand who they are to understand why this matters. The Sadducees were one group of the Jewish leaders. So if you think of the church today, you know, there are, we are the church of God. And there are Lutherans, and there are Catholics, and there are Presbyterians, and there are, you know, the Christian church, and the church of Christ. And there are, all of these are different denominations of Christianity, okay? Think of the Sadducees like a denomination of the Jewish faith. They were a group, a denomination. So in Judaism at the time of Jesus, there were four denominations. Sadducees, Pharisees, um, Zealots, and the Essenes, okay? And I've talked about those four groups before. The Sadducees, they were a group that was only in Jerusalem, and they were the religious leaders that were in charge of the Jewish temple in Jerusalem. The Sadducees, they were involved in politics. They were in with the Roman politicians, and they had political power. Now, the Sadducees had some unique 
um, theological beliefs. One of those beliefs was that they did not, they only believed that the first five books of the Bible were the only ones that were authoritative. Genesis, Exodus, Leviticus, Numbers, Deuteronomy. They believed that only those five books were the, were the Bible. They didn't believe in any of the other books as being inspired by God. Because they only believed in those five books, they believed that there was no resurrection of the dead. Because in those five books of the Bible, it does not talk about, so they believed, an afterlife. They believed that there was no afterlife. Now, this is clever, and some of you know what I'm going to say next, some of you, and you're going to roll your eyes, okay? Here's the way you remember that. They were sad, you see, because they did not believe in an afterlife. Mark Brown, you used that one long before me. Yes, it's lame, but it actually does, not that you're lame, Pastor Mark, but it actually does, it's actually a helpful way of remembering that, Okay? But that's not the only thing that the Sadducees believed that was different than the other groups. The Sadducees also did not believe that there were angels. That's interesting. So they believe there's no afterlife. They believe there's no angels. In fact, they didn't believe there was anything supernatural. Now, we think the Sadducees are weird, but let me suggest something to you and then we'll move on. Did you know there is a group in the United States of America that is large and growing that holds many of the same belief as the Sadducees. We don't call them Sadducees. We call them materialists. These are people who don't believe in anything supernatural. They think that there is only particles in motion, atoms in motion, that there is no supernatural. They believe there's no soul. They believe that when you die, you're just dead. So they also believe that we are all just made up of the things of the universe, and that when we die, we go back to being part of the universe. Carl Sagan is a material, was a materialist. Now, he didn't believe in the five books of the Old Testament, but pretty much everything else, he was with the Sadducees. Materialists today are Sadducees, except they didn't believe in the five books. Just something interesting. All right, enough about the Sadducees. Um, the point I'm making is that the Sadducees asked Jesus this question, but they didn't actually want an answer. Do you see that? They had already made up their mind, there's no afterlife. So this question about marriage in the resurrection wasn't a question. It was a trap. They thought they could trap Jesus into saying something stupid about the afterlife that they could contradict with Scripture and disprove Jesus. They didn't believe in an afterlife. It didn't work. So, now we know who the Sadducees were, but the question they ask still seems very odd, doesn't it? It seems odd to our ears. And here's where I would remind you again, context and exegesis matters. Context, what did the original, and exegesis, what did the original audience hear? This is the question we skip today in the church so often. The original audience that Jesus was speaking to were Jews living under Jewish law. They would have known exactly what was being referred to in this question. It's a specific term. It is leveret marriage. I mean, it seems very odd to me that 
if your brother's wife died, you would have to marry the widow. <laughs> I mean, just, doesn't, just think about that. That seems really odd to me, right? But Jews at this time, they would know this because if you look at Genesis 38, 8 and Deuteronomy 25, 5 and Ruth chapter 4, verses 1 through 12, leveret marriage was a part of Jewish society. Now, we're not going to spend a bunch of time looking at these. I hope you do at home. But the idea is really quite simple. If a man dies without producing a son, his wife is supposed to marry the man's brother. And then when a son is produced from that marriage union, the son takes the name of the dead brother, so the dead brother's name continues. Do you see that? And then as an added benefit, the widow is brought into the man's family so that she will be taken care of. Remember, women at this time, they were almost completely dependent upon their husband for food, for shelter. They couldn't own property, not in Jewish law. So, leveret marriage was a way of not only protecting the man's legacy, but of protecting the woman. It was a good thing, a very good thing. Now, the question that the Sadducees ask is, whose husband will this woman be married to at the resurrection? Of course, it's a trap, right? The Sadducees don't actually want an answer. They just want to trip up Jesus. They're trying to trap Jesus with a question that proves he doesn't know what he's talking about. But um, to use modern lingo, uh, Jesus owned them. In fact, when Jesus says this stuff, I imagine there's people in the crowd that were like, burn. Did I use that? Was that phrase right? Okay, I shouldn't try to be cool. All right, so here we go. Let's look at uh, verse 27. Jesus replied, The people of this age marry and are given in marriage, but those who are considered worthy of taking part in that age and in the resurrection from the dead will neither marry nor be given in marriage, and they can no longer die, for they're like the angels. They are God's children since they are... Um, since they are children of the resurrection. But in the account of the bush, even Moses showed that the dead, dead rise, for he calls the Lord the God of Abraham and the God of Isaac and the God of Jacob. He's not the God of the dead, but of the living, for to him all are alive. Now, Jesus' answer here is quite difficult for us. In fact, my guess is that Jesus' answer goes against what you may believe about marriage. There is no marriage at the resurrection. Why not? Because the age of resurrection is going to be very different than this age. Have you ever considered Christian marriage vows? If you're married or getting married, I suggest you consider Christian marriage vows. Because you know what the last part of the vow is? Come on, everybody. What's the last part of the marriage vow? Till death do us part. Guess what, all y'all? At death, the covenant of marriage ends. It's done. And you will not be married in heaven. So for some of you, this is a great joy. (laughs) There is great hopefulness that death brings the end of marriage. But my hope is that for most of you that are experiencing a positive Christian marriage, 
This is very confusing. Because for most of us, we would desire to stay married in the age to come. Jesus teaches us that that is not what happens. We do not stay married in the age to come. The contract of marriage expires at death. You see, we've got this thing in our culture that we just need to find our soulmate, right? If I can just find my soulmate, it'll be great. And I see on Facebook, I won't name any names, but on Facebook there are things that are like, you know, five years together to the start of our eternity. Well, in one sense that's true, because if you're both Christians, you will be together in eternity, but you won't be married in eternity. You won't be married in eternity. I might be correcting theology right now of something that was on Facebook. So, I, it, I understand the concept of soulmate is a powerful one, but it's not exactly Christian. This is difficult, isn't it, for us? But this is what Jesus teaches us. Marriage is not forever. In fact, marriage is a shadow. It's a shadow of a much greater reality. The reality of Christ's marriage to the church. Every wedding that I have ever officiated, and every wedding that I will officiate until the day I die, I will read Ephesians 5. Because that explains how human marriage is a shadow of the marriage between Christ and the church. Now, shadows can be good and helpful, but they're not the reality. The true fulfillment that marriage is a shadow of is the fulfillment that we unite with Christ. And in the resurrection, the age of the resurrection, that reality becomes real. I want to read something from a commentary. But we must remember that the quality and purity of relationships will extend far beyond what marriage provides today. Sin will no longer cloud our relationships, and the quality of personal interaction in a world will be directed fully by the presence of God. The absence of evil and the presence of God make marriage as a supportive and protective institution superfluous. I can't say that word. For those who hesitate at this remark because their marriage has been good, just remember, heaven will be better. The union that we will have with Christ, the marriage union that we will have with Christ, will be far better than our human marriage union. That is actually something that is hopeful. I know that there are those of you that look forward to being reunited with your spouse in heaven. And you will be. We will be reunited together. But it will not be marriage. It will be better. Better. Oh, man. It's 1120. How in the world did we just burn through that? And some of you are like, nope, it's been that long. (laughs) Well, I had a whole other section I wanted to go in, but I am out of time.
And so I will have to pick it up next week. I want to wrap up this time by reminding you that death and taxes are reality. But they're not the reality that you maybe have thought of before this time. All that we have is God's and belongs to God. But God has ordained authority to our government. So should you pay taxes? Yeah. But the point is not pay taxes in that story. The point is to recognize the authority of Jesus Christ. And marriage. Marriage is such a blessing from God, or it can be. But there's something so much greater. And the authority of Jesus, if you will allow that authority, if you will be submissive to the authority of Christ in your life, you can look forward to a better marriage. Far better. Far better in the age of the resurrection. Are you submitted to Jesus Christ in this way? In such a way that you recognize that every other thing in your life is less than Christ. That your political involvement is less than Christ. Even that your marriage is less than Christ. Jesus' authority is so powerful and so life-changing if you will submit to him. It will change everything. I hope you will. Please pray with me. Lord God, I am astonished that we can be in your word and just like a flash, time goes by and our time is up. Your word is so rich and understanding your word in context and with bringing the tools of exegesis to bear and recognizing the original audience and Lord, it is so powerful and so rich, so full. We are just so excited, Lord as we understand your word better and better and better. Lord, we do look forward to the age of resurrection. You are the God of the living, not the dead. We look forward to that day when Abraham and Isaac and Jacob will join with us in new life, in a different kind of life, not marred by sin, in a kind of life where your presence is what gives us sustenance. We look forward to that day. May we live as people that keep that day in our ever-present thoughts. In Jesus' name we pray. Amen.